This podcast is brought to you by The City Church in Mississauga, Ontario. For more information, please visit thecitychurch.ca. We hope you are encouraged by this message from Dr. Coulter. All right, let's pray. Father, we praise you tonight and we thank you for your precious, holy, written word. We thank you, Lord, that it illuminates our minds, renews our souls, and is medicine to our flesh. We thank you, Lord, for removing any barrier of communication. Thank you for the anointing of the Spirit to deliver your word accurately and for us to hear it accurately. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. All the people said? Amen. Amen. We're at Roman numeral 3E2, return blessings when evil is done to you. I covered, page six, I I covered uh, verses eight and nine. I just want to make a general comment about this paraphrase that I would like to call it between verses eight and 12. Generally speaking, this would be uh, the general idea here. There is an enjoyment in life and contentment in life no matter what the outward circumstances, because his ears are open to our prayers. And so uh, in Philippians 4, chapter 6 and 7, and by the way, when I give you scriptures, whether uh, it's on the board or not, I think it's important for you to write it down because I want, the basic thing is I want you to see the coherence of the scriptures. All the way through the Old Testament, one thing hangs on the other. So one writer's not saying something that the other writer didn't say. It's how they're saying it in different ways. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So first of all, you have to not be anxious. In other words, there's no anxiety and prayer don't go together. So don't be anxious. Get yourself into the position which you are casting all your care in the Lord and then pray. The thanksgiving request be made known unto God and then the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we can enjoy life even when we're going through something. And that's, I know that that's a foreign concept to many Christians. 1 Peter 3.10 For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. In the context in which this scripture is written, it does not mean that you have a trouble-free life, simply because we live in a broken world and trouble tries to come. And then we have a devil who tries to prowl around and mess us up. Notice Psalm 34, 9. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 1 Peter 3, 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Jesus' statement in Matthew 5, 9 is something similar. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. So we 
forgive everybody, and then we stay open for reconciliation. Always remember that forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. Forgiveness is on your part. That is, you forgive the person for whatever they have done. But in reconciliation has to have two people coming together. So always be open for reconciliation. And then there's a scripture that comes to mind, but I don't know actually where it is. It says, as much as you are able, then seek peace. If anybody can find that before the end of the class, that would be good. And now I give it to you, give it out. First Peter chapter 3.12 says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. Let's read the whole thing. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That is you tonight. And his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I think that this implies, looking at the context, this implies not merely that God sees what we are doing, what the righteous are doing, but that he's looking after them for good and meeting their needs where he can do it. People have to believe God for the meeting of their needs. So this passage from verse 8 to 12 presents a bold affirmation of the reconciliation or the relation between righteous living and God's present blessings in our lives. There is a, there is a correlation between living right and God's blessings. And you know if you live long enough that there are some Christians who don't live right. So God is is giving a bold affirmation of the, the, the consequences of living right, that God blesses the people. Also in this passage, there's a mild correction to careless, half-hearted Christians. Peter is saying, no, bring up the standards. Okay, we're going now to <clears throat> Roman numeral 3E, 3A. <clears throat> The whole section is how to act when you suffer for righteousness. This one is know that you are blessed. So 1 Peter 3.13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So Peter is beginning this section now and he wants to talk about the persecution of unbelievers. So I want to read 1 Peter 3.13 and 3.14. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Well, let's couple that with Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 38. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers. Anything else there? Well, it says, shall be able to separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus. And so, <clears throat> it's saying that in the face, see, we need to understand that we, we can't go by our feelings because when we're being persecuted, we're going through a rough time. Our feelings are right, right close to the eyeballs and close to right on the outside. So we have to be cognizant of these kind of things. So that in the face of negative circumstances, if I keep faith in God, and it doesn't matter who caused the circumstances. You could have caused them yourself. Somebody else caused them. If you caused them yourself, just, Lord, forgive me, whatever. But in the face of negative circumstances, if you keep faith in God and cast the care in him, he brings me through, but not only that, he brings me through with blessings. Persecution or sadness or tough times or hardship happens in this life. But blessings come if you stay true to Christ and have no fear while you're going along with that nor be troubled. Now, it's, it's, it's very easy to fear when things are looking like they're going down the tubes. But God is an amazing God. He has hundreds and thousands of ways to correct the problem. Literally hundreds and thousands of ways to correct the problem. Esther and I have had problems corrected from left field. Because we're, you know, we're thinking of how God's going to do this, and how God's going to do that, and how God's going to do this, and all of a sudden he does it, but in a way that you would never understand or you couldn't grasp. I'll say First Peter 3.15, the first part of it. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your heart, regard to Christ the Lord as holy. The alternative to fear is to focus your attention on somebody else. The alternative to fear is to focus your attention, and in this case, on God. Reverence or regard him as holy. So the issue is, for us all, is reverence for the Lord or fear of men. That would be good to write down. Reverence for the Lord or fear of man, what man can do to me. This is the alternative. okay, this is what somebody did to me, then what's to hinder from that person keep doing that or me succumbing to somebody else who wants to do it to me? Will I ever be smart enough not to allow it to happen to me again or whatever? Reverence for the Lord or fear of man. But in your hearts, he says, honor Christ the Lord as holy. 
Now, I can do that if I understand the scripture. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, I don't think I have it on the screen. That would be good to put down as a possible thing. Also, Isaiah 8, 13. Also, Matthew 6, 9. But John, 1 John 4, 4 says at the end, the B part of that verse, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. So whatever the world has brought to my plate, I know that the greater one lives within me and he'll do, listen, he can do abundantly above all I can ask or think. That's found in, first, in Ephesians chapter 1, I think the last verse. He can do abundantly above all I can ask or think. Is that right? Ephesians 1, the last verse. I see somebody madly looking it up to see if I know what I'm talking about at all. Jesus is coming soon. Is that the last verse? Oh, is that 3? 320. 3.20. We'll make sure that's right because that's a good verse. 3.20? 3.20. The Lord can do abundantly above all you can ask or think. So you have thoughts about how God is, you know, about how you want to be blessed or how God's going to do it. And he can do it abundantly above all you can ask or think. You can take great pleasure and comfort in that kind of a scripture. But you need to have it on the inside of you. It's no good to say, well, I wonder what that verse that pastor said, you know, last October, last November. It would be good to know that, wouldn't it? Okay, 1 Peter 3.15, the last part of that verse. The first part of it says... But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now here's what I want to get to. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So Peter is saying the Holy Spirit is expecting you in the midst of hard times to be able to give a defense for the hope. So the, per the, 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 the average person wouldn't even know you're going through a problem. Because while you're, while you're suffering this persecution, your actions will speak louder and then they will want to say, okay, what's going on with you? Or they may even know you're going through the problem, but your face doesn't show it and the way you're act acting doesn't show it and the way uh, that you're speaking doesn't show it. So they're going to say, how come? And here's what Peter says, be ready to make a defense to anyone so in other words, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that lies within you. So the issue is, from the first other, other verses ahead of it, don't just stop fearing, but he encourages them to prepare for active witnessing with a view to win the unbeliever to Christ. So it seems here that Peter is suggesting that Christian living is noticeably different and that unbelievers would ask why. So Christians need to be ready to respond, to seize the opportunity when it comes to be effective witness for Christ. Not hold up at home, crying and carrying on. See, this is what Peter's actually saying. Because remember, these people 
in these four provinces were a minority people who were suffering, suffering terribly for being Christians. And Peter says, I want you to take a different tone. I want you to take a different tact. Then it says in that verse, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So witnessing is not an attempt to overpower the unbeliever with an aggressive approach, but trusting the Holy Spirit to persuade the listener with a gentle approach out of the spontaneousness of your living, the way you live, the way you act. Look at verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile you for good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So he's really saying this, these kind of things are going to happen to you as Christians. Having good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now I thought about that, business about a good conscience. Have you ever thought about what it means to have a good conscience? Everything's everything's cool, everything's all right. What What would you have to do to have a good conscience? What would that look like? Have you given that some thought? Well, let me give you the thoughts that I just jotted down here. Having a good conscience would mean to avoid disobedience. That which we know to do right, we do it. Therefore, avoid disobedience. That would be the first thing to have a good conscience. A good conscience is like a sense of well-being. Avoid disobedience. Practice, I think, avoiding uh, having a good conscience would be practicing immediate repentance. Where necessary, repentance means to change and do something different. Where I, need, where I know I need to do something different, I do something different. Practicing repentance. Practicing change where it's necessary. The third thing I thought about, about avoiding having a good conscience, is prayer for forgiveness when you're aware of sin in your own life. And pray for forgiveness for others. So you forgive others, you pray for forgiveness for yourself, you receive forgiveness. Understanding that God doesn't know about your sin when you pray, he already knows before you pray, so you might as well ask him to forgive you. So, having good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When you are a recipient of slander, slander meaning insulting speech, um, lying about you. Have you had anybody lie about you? I've had people lie through their teeth about me. Lying about what I believe and what I don't believe. Straight up lie. I've had people call me ministers uh, ministers calling me from out of town saying we heard that you don't believe blah 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 um, I, said, I said well that's that's a lie so somebody is lying right so what are you going to do well 
because of your good behavior, because of you, how you receive it, what you do about it, opponents eventually, the Lord says, will be put to shame. So my question is for the person who's lying, either stop lying or be put to shame somewhere down the line. It's not hard because it depends on how I respond to that, doesn't it? So I forgive the person and then go on with my life. They keep on lying. Then God says they're going to be put to shame. So when you're slandered, watch how you act. Watch how you act. Slander will be silenced, he says, really. So you have a reason for hope. You're, all the time this is happening, you, you continue on serving Jesus. You continue on doing what you know to do right. Hoping that you will, will get other people saved while this is going on against you. 1 Peter 3.17 I had a minister call me the other day and say that somebody had stolen his identity. Social insurance number, credit cards, bank accounts, everything. Actually went into the bank and borrowed $10,000 under his name and then went to Ohio and spent it all doing stuff at Target and other places else. Now, we had a long conversation about that. He said, can you believe this? I said, well, I've heard of worse things, but I, I'm sure when you're going through it, it's not good. But the, the, the time you have to spend with the lawyers and the bankers and the this and that, trying to get this all corrected. Um, and he has no clue how this happened. They have no clue how it happened person actually went into the bank thinking that, saying that, the, that I'm this guy and took $10,000. So I guess you better hang on to your identity, you know what I mean? So how is he going to act? How is, what's he going to say? Is he going to tell a whole lot of people? No. But be sure when he goes to the father about this, he'll get his identity back and that guy will get caught. Now, this is what he says, be put to shame. That, that word shame in the Greek can also be translated confounded. The person will be confounded. 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So we therefore suffer and witness while we're doing it, so that others might be saved. And he's saying this is better than suffering for something you did wrong because that would hardly be a good witness. Suffering for doing wrong is not a good witness. Suffering for doing right is a good witness. Because what's Peter saying to these people? He's saying that if you want to live holy and a Christian life, somewhere along the line you're going to get persecuted about it. And stuff is going to happen in this life. But praise God, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. And I can come through, not just get coming through, but coming through with blessings and abounding in my life.
So we're going now to 3E3C1 with a dot over it. Roman numeral 3E3C1. For Christ suffered in order to bring you to God. Verse 18. For Christ suffered also once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered for sins resulting in death. So Peter uses this to relate to verse 17 that we've already talked about. But his suffering makes our suffering pale into insignificance. Hebrews 12, 2 to 4. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured, endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So he's saying our, our, our suffering pales into insignificance for, uh, of what he did. The righteous for the unrighteousness. And this is the emphasis that Jesus never sinned, but became sin for me. And you can find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So there was a great exchange, but God does. God in Christ took our sin and gives us his righteousness. To do what? so that it would bring us to God. And this is the good news, isn't it? That God is not mad at you. That salvation is free. You just have to accept Jesus. Acts, uh, another reference you might use there at Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Then in that verse, in verse 18 at the end, it says, made alive in the spirit. This is, of course, talking about the resurrection. This is not Jesus just coming back to life to be able to die again. But this is a resurrection. This is permanent coming alive. God raised Jesus from the dead permanently. This guarantees our resurrection, 1 Corinthians 6.14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The reason that we'll be resurrected is because Jesus is on the inside of us. The resurrected Christ by the Holy Spirit, the eternal spirit, is on the inside of us. And when we die physically, we will be resurrected because we don't die spiritually. Our bodies will, all the molecules will come together and unite with our, our, our alive spirit. And we go to be with the Lord. We resurrect the eternal spiritual resurrection that lasts forever is on the inside of us when we receive Christ as Savior. That's why we can be resurrected and will be resurrected in the last day if we die before Jesus comes. And if we don't die before Jesus comes, in the twinkling of an eye, our bodies will be changed into spiritual bodies. Now, the Apostle Paul wants us to get a revelation of this. He wants us to get a revelation of what's on the inside of us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 to 20. I'm going to read it. It's on the screen. 
having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Paul wants us to get a revelation of the power of God on the inside of us. Verses 19 and 20. This is uh, 3E3C2 with two dots over it. Another example, Noah witnessed when persecuted. Now this is a little tricky. So I'm going to take it slow, and if you need me to repeat it, I will. So verse 318 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now verse 19, In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Most people read that and have no foggiest idea what that's talking about. Okay, well, I'm going to separate it for you as best I can. Peter here is introducing a new subject. Christ was made alive in the spirit, verse 18, but he also did something else in the spirit realm, according to verses 19 and 20. So one must answer the question in context, what are the spirits in prison? What are the spirits in prison? Who are they? In order to make sense within the context. Here's the answer. As succinctly as I can put it. Christ was preaching through Noah when the ark was being built. See? Because the formerly did not obey when Christ patiently waited the days of Noah. Noah was anointed by the Spirit, and Christ, in the spirit realm, was preaching through Noah. As Noah yielded to God, Christ is preaching to, through him by the righteousness of Christ. If, if, if taken by itself, you, want, you would think that um, the spirits in prison or people in hell that Christ is now preaching to again, giving them a second chance. But there is no second chance in the scriptures. So you have to figure out what this is about. These spirits in prison or in hell are classified in verse 20 as those who formerly did not obey in Noah's day when the ark was being built. I'm going to say that again. These spirits in prison are classified in verse 20 as those people who formerly did not obey in Noah's day when the ark was being built. The text then understood is this. At the time of Peter's writing, the spirits, these spirits were in prison or in hell, but who were people alive on earth at the time of Noah when, he, when Christ was preaching to them through Noah? 
And at that time, when Christ was preaching through them, they refused to hear to hear about how to get saved, to come into the ark. The ark is a representative of Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. Now, Noah would have no concept of righteousness. He would have to be preaching, anointed by the Spirit, preaching something he himself didn't understand. He was preaching how to get saved, how to get saved, how to miss the judgment, how to do that, come into the ark. We preach today how to miss the judgment, come into Christ. Repent and come to God for salvation. Noah was, uh, Jesus was not preaching to dead people in hell, giving them a second chance. Peter here in context was drawing a parallel between the situation of Noah and the situation of Peter's readers. Noah and his family were a minority in a world of unrighteousness and unbelievers. Peter's readers were a minority in a huge, vast empire of unbelievers. So number one, Noah and his family were a minority surrounded by hostile unbelievers. 1 Peter 3, 13 and 14. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Number two, Noah was righteous in a wicked world of unbelievers. Peter exhorts his readers to be the same. 1 Peter 4, 3 and 4. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Noah was righteous in a wicked world. Peter's readers are righteous in a wicked world. Number three, Noah witnessed boldly to those around him. Peter encourages his readers to do the same, and we just studied that. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, and do it with gentleness and respect, and so on and so on and so on. Number four, nor realize judgment is coming. Peter says judgment is coming. 1 Peter 4, 5, and 7, and we'll get to it today. But they give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The end of all things at his hand, therefore be self-control, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Number five, Christ preached through Noah to unbelievers. I've already talked about that. Because Christ is in us, he empowers us to witness the same. And when we do witness the same way, it makes it spiritually effective when we're not afraid to be known as a Christian. You can't be thinking, praise God, I made it one more day through. Nobody in the office knew I'm born again. <laughs> made it through one more day. And I don't mean to be weird. I'm not talking about you to be weird, weird and wonderful. I'm talking about out of the spontaneousness of living and functioning properly in society and doing a good job at your work, 
out of your spontaneousness of your living and the winsomeness of your life, you're going to have opportunity to share with people. When Pastor Brent was working at a finance company after university for a couple of a little while, he was known as Born Again Brent. Why did they know him like that? Not because he was weird and wonderful, but because out of the spontaneousness of his life, people recognized there was something different about this guy. So he had opportunity to share. Number six, righteous Noah was saved, so are we who are righteous of God in Christ. Righteous Noah was saved. He preached the gospel. He went into the ark. We preach the gospel. We stay in Christ. Christ in us. And so he was saved. But this is not Jesus preaching to people in hell who've already died. He doesn't do that. There is no second chance. Okay, 1 Peter 3, 21 and 22. Uh, let me read uh, verse 20 again. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. This is verse 20. While the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight persons were brought safely. Now notice that thing through the water. Through the water. Everybody say through the water. Through the water. Now verse 21. Baptism. Through the water. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, as an appeal to God for, con for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, the angels, sorties, powers of having been subjected to him. Going through the water, baptism. So baptism in water corresponds to this whole concept here, this was analogy. We, we go through the waters of baptism. We say certain things of the waters of baptism. We say, this is not saving us. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. Going through the waters of baptism doesn't save us, but it tells people that what has happened to us, we died with Christ and we're living for God. Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We, too, walk in the newness of life. I am saying in baptism, I'm dying to my old self, rising to my new self in Christ. This is what's happened to me. It doesn't mean that by going under the water, I'm being saved or I'm, sin is being removed from my life. So the reference here to water baptism is in an analogy form. We are submerged in the water. That is a symbol. We have died to the old life and rising to a new life coming out of the water. As Noah fled into the ark for salvation, so we flee into Christ and escape judgment. Peter is not saying that water baptism saves you. It says it saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. Salvation is not an outward physical act like washing dirt from the body. That is not what saves you. Taking a bath doesn't save you, doesn't remove things. So let me paraphrase this whole thing. Baptism now saves you. Not the outward physical ceremony of baptism, but the inward spiritual reality which baptism represents. 
not magical view of baptism, that is power in the physical ceremony itself, this guards us from the idea of holy water. There is no such a thing as holy water. It doesn't remove anything. It doesn't save anything. It doesn't, I don't care how many times you cross yourself or sprinkle it on you, it doesn't save you. The only things that saves you is Christ's salvation on the cross. That's it. And it gives you a clear conscience. I come then, it says, it says here, uh, uh, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A clear conscience of our salvation comes as we understand that salvation is in the cross of Christ, that one stands in the righteous relationship with God by accepting Christ as Savior and Lord. Hebrews 10.22 Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So my heart is sprinkled clean. I become the righteousness of God. My, my, my spirit changes from being dead to God to alive to God. Salvation in the New Testament is always by faith alone in the finished work of Christ. And it's resurrection which declares the divine justice has been met. Peter completes this discussion in verse 22 with a mention of Christ's ascension who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He's at the right hand of God, an ancient idea. One who is at the right hand of kings has authority. Christ has all power over spiritual entities, angels, authorities, powers, both good and evil spiritual beings. He has all authority, but he indicates in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Positionally tonight, spiritually tonight, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have a share in the authority in the name of Jesus. Over what? Over spiritual powers, over evil spirits, over the devil. You can tell the devil, get out. You can resist the devil in the name of Jesus and he will flee from you. You have this authority because positionally in Christ you're seated above all. And with that name that's above every name, you have the right to resist the devil in every form that he comes against you. James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Praise God for that power. Are you happy about it? Do you know who you are in Christ? The next time a pain hits you. Now remember that when the devil is removed from this earth, there is no more pain or suffering. So you have to know where pain comes from. When the pain hits you, rebuke the thing in the name of Jesus. Don't sit there thinking, well, I wonder where this came from. I wonder what the cause is. No. Rebuke it and its cause. Don't wait 
and cry and worry and be anxious. Understand your authority. You're seated in Christ in heavenly places at the right hand of God. The right hand in meaning that if a person sat at the right hand of the king, he had shared the authority with the king. You have delegated authority tonight. That's why Jesus said, now you go. All power is given unto me. Now you go with my name. Praise God for the truth. I could get preaching tonight. I think what we'll do, Tom, is we'll take the break now. Romans, um, Romans something. Romans 12. 17 and 18, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So you live, you, you allow the peace of God to rule you. If they don't want to live peaceably, that's where the if comes in. You do it, but if they don't want to do it, there's nothing you can do about it. Okay, that was the verse that I was trying to think about. <coughs> Okay, we're at 3E3D1. The, the, the first six verses of Romans cha- of uh, 1 Peter 4 decide that you are willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. That's really a uh, key there. For a Christian who has suffered for doing right has made a clear break with sin. I'm going to say that again as the title. For a Christian who has suffered for doing right has made a clear break with sin. Now, let me, let me explain that. 1 Peter 4.1 Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves <clears throat> with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now, let me give you a, a little definition of this word suffer now that we're using it a lot. Could be persecution could be something that affects you negatively, could be emotional or verbal, or some authority exercising authority over you negatively without cause. You could suffer sadness over some situation. There's many forms of suffering. In the scriptures, in the New Testament, the suffering is never suffering sickness and disease. God doesn't want you to suffer sickness and disease, but he recognizes that you will suffer in other ways. Sickness and disease is something that you can, you can eradicate, you can get rid of. Sometimes you can't get rid of suffering. It, it's teaching us how to operate here in, in a suffering context. Peter now resumes this theme of suffering. Arm yourselves with the same thought means that Think as Christ did about obedience to suffering. Obedience to suffering. Am I willing to go through this for Christ's sake? Am I willing to do this? Am I willing to make this change that God is asking me to change or do or make or whatever? and suffer for it. To reiterate this point then, whoever has suffered for doing right 
and has still gone on obeying God, who has suffered for doing right and still gone on living for God in spite of the suffering, has made a clear break with sin. I'm going to say that now again. Whoever has suffered for doing right and has still gone on to obey God in spite of the suffering has made a clear break with sin. Let me say two things. One, don't go looking for persecution. Just live your life obedient to God. Live your life holy. Don't be afraid to be known as a Christian. On the other hand, some people give up entirely on God when they suffer. God is not see God is not saying in the New Testament that you won't suffer in a broken world. The devil will try to bring stuff to you. But God wants you to be obedient in that sense to keep serving him and allowing him to work through you, allowing your faith to take you through the suffering with blessings. I'll say more about that in a minute. Following through with a decision to obey God, even when it means suffering, has a morally strengthening effect on your life. I know that from experience. I'm going to say it again. Following, following through with a decision to obey God in your life, even when it means suffering, has a morally strengthening effect on your life. First Peter 4.2 So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Ceasing from sin now, that he talked about in verse 1, he now goes on to explain this in more detail. God's will is more important than living life governed by human feelings as to live for the rest of the time in this flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. God's will is more important than living governed by my feelings, but for the will of God, it says. Verse 3, For the time is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. It must mean that some of the Christians here in these four provinces were doing this stuff. Uh, living, living by their feelings. Now, Peter is saying you should not want to live like this anymore. Because you've had done enough of this before you were saved. For the time is past, suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. You've done enough of this stuff. You don't need to do it again after you get saved. Sensuality. It says sensuality. Uh, the King James talks, it uses the word licentiousness, meaning no moral restraint. No restraint in your life. And you've known Christians like that. Physical violence, sexual immorality, saying things, anything they want to feel like saying coming out of their mouth. Passions. Sinful human desires which are allowed to exert strong influence on one's behavior. 
we do have these physical passions. But you, 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 you harness them into doing righteous living. Then it uses these words, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, wild parties given to immorality, drinking binges. Then it says lawless idolatry, acts of idol, of idol worship. A lot of times in, in, in the Western world, we don't bow down to idols, but we sometimes give priority over with things over God. We sometimes make sacred things that aren't even sacred. We worship things that shouldn't be worshipped from time to time. The love of money. Attitudes. Okay, we can, we, you, you, can, you can worship at the altar of a lot of things. So God says, don't get involved in lawless idolatry. And then the next section, Roman numeral 3E, 3D, 3 with three dots over them, there is a judgment coming for Gentiles who abuse you. Now, in other words, you live right because there's a judgment coming for those people who are abusing you. It says this, verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised, unbelievers, when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Now, Paul, Peter says, understand, when you don't join them because you used to join them, but you're now not joining them and they're going to malign you for it. Debauchery means uncontrolled indulgence, loose living, wastefulness, both of money and life. Wastefulness, both of money and wasting life. This picture that he gives of unbelievers is one of rushing headlong into destruction. And they're surprised when you don't join them because you used to. They malign you, he says. They become hostile with verbal abuse and slander and speak evil or defame you and injure your reputation because you expose their darkness. When you don't do what they do, you'll expose darkness. Um, you could use their um, James 5 through 9, or you could use 2 Peter 3.10 around this area. 1 Peter 4.5, But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Unbelievers will not escape the consequences of their actions. They will have to give an account to God. Jesus said that in Matthew 12, 36. I have it on the screen. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Death doesn't save you from judgment. Death does not save you from judgment. Next section. For the gospel was preached to Christians who have died to save them from eternal punishment. That's an interesting verse. For this is why, verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who were dead. Now remember, when the gospel was preached to them, they were alive. But now they're dead. 
that through, though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Okay, let me pull, let me unpack that a little bit. The fate of believers who have died, the fate of believers who have died, is Peter's next discussion. The gospel was preached to them while they were alive, and they accepted Christ. But they were judged in the flesh. That means the judgment of death, which comes upon all of us because of Adam's sin. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death has not been yet put under the feet of Jesus. So we still die physically. But these people accepted Christ. And and when they died, they died physically, but they live in the spirit. Let's read that again. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are, should say, now dead, that through, though judge in, this, in the flesh, they died, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So we're going to live on forever with God in the spirit realm. Some verses you might... Uh, well, <clears throat> so let, let me just say that this is not talking about this is not talking about preaching to people with second chances, although at first glance you could take that out. How do we know that there's no second chance? Here's the verse, Hebrews 9:27. And just as is it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. There is a judgment coming after that. A judgment for the believer and a judgment for the unbeliever. They take different tacks, which I'll show you here in a minute. The judgment for the believer is totally different than the judgment for the unbeliever. But let's go to the next section. The final judgment is near, so act this way. Now, he's going to talk about acting within the church. He's going to talk about acting how how unbelievers are supposed to treat one another. And the point is that unbelievers don't treat each other like this all the time. That's Peter's point. Pray more and love each other more. If you prayed more and love each other more, you would never do anything to cause any hurt or ill to any unbeliever. You would think twice about doing anything. The end of all things is at hand. I would also say, and I'm this is not this is like an aside. Believers get judged sometimes in this life. That God sometimes has to withdraw because He says He gives grace to those, but He resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, talking to Christians. So sometimes God withdraws his blessings as a judgment. He resists the proud. Gives grace to the humble. Anyway, let's go on. The end of all things is at hand, he said in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. All right, what's this mean? Even in Peter's day, this is what it meant. And if it meant this in Peter's day, it this means now. The end of all things is at hand, meaning all major events 
in God's plan of redemption has occurred. Therefore, all things are ready for Christ's return. Let me give you redemption's story in a nutshell. Be ready to write. This is called, in the Greek, in, in, in the German language, it's called Heilsgeschichte. I love that word. Salvation history. Here's salvation history. Creation. The fall. The calling of Abraham. The exodus from Egypt. The kingdom of Israel. With kings and so on. Their exile in Babylon. Their return from Babylon. The birth of Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The pouring out of the Holy Spirit in a new dimension, in a new dimension, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in a new dimension, where the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit dwells in us. and not just on us. Okay, the next thing is the existence or the creation of the church. Creation of the church individually, individually, Let me just, just stop for a second. In meaning, what I'm saying that individually, meaning individually you are the church, but also corporately, but also corporately. So let me just say this now before I go on. The church individually is invisible, invisible, it's on the inside of you. But the church visible is when the, the church comes together as a group of people. So the church visible is the city church, corporately. The church invisible is the kingdom of God on the inside of you. So the church, 
So the only thing that's left in the plan of redemption is the return of Christ. So that, what I mean then, that all of these things are ready for Christ's return. Everything in the plan of redemption has occurred, ready for Christ to come back. Because of that, the end of all things, verse 7, is at hand. Therefore, be controlled, self-controlled, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, do not play music at 830, because I'm not going to be finished at 830. This is the last class, so I am going to finish chapter 4. If you have to leave, feel, please feel free. I will stay here till I'm finished, even if there's one person, which will be my wife. <laughs> she, she's been here for 54 years. She's not going anywhere. Therefore, <laughs> therefore being self-controlled and sober-minded, isn't this interesting? For the sake of your prayers. For the sake of your prayers. You want your prayers answered? Have some self-control, sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. The Christians should realize that the end of the age could happen at any time, therefore act a certain way, self-control, sober-minded. What's sober-minded? A sound mind thinking and evaluating situations maturely and correctly in God. The reason given to be self-controlled in a sound mind is for the sake of your prayers. In other words, if, you be, if you're self-controlled and sober-minded, you're going to pray more effectively and more intelligently. Verse 8. Above all, and we're talking about in the church, with, un, with Christian believers, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You ever try to figure out what that means? Love covers a multitude of sins. This is, this is unfailing love. This is love no matter what. When love abounds in the fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some larger ones are overlooked. Because we know that none of us are perfect. Now, I know for a fact that this is the kind of atmosphere that Pastor Brent is trying to create here in this church. He keeps telling us, none of us are perfect, so relax. When love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses, even some larger ones, covers a multitude of sins, are overlooked. For love is lacking... Every word sometimes is viewed with suspicion and misunderstood. Conflicts abound then in the church and up to Satan's delight. Hebrews twelve fifteen. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Hebrews twelve fifteen. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Look at Proverbs ten. 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Love overlooks and prays for people. Now, sometimes in the context of a church where sin is, 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 is so 
prevalent or in a certain situation, this person is acting in such a way as to create chaos within the church, then the pastor has to keep order and have some discipline, but that's another whole topic. People have to feel safe within the body of believers, and they'll feel safe if love abounds. But sometimes people can get out of order, and when they get out of order, then you have to deal with it. First Peter 4.9 Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So this earnest love that Peter's talking about here finds its expression in very practical terms. Hospitality. That which is offered freely without grumbling or murmuring or complaining or resentment. And it's done within the household of faith. Look at Galatians 6.10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's you guys in, 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 in the household of faith. You do good to everybody, but especially to your brothers and sisters in Christ. The next section says glorify God in using your gifts. Talking about in the church still. Verse 10, as each has received a gift. Notice each of you sitting here tonight have received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Somebody says, well, I don't have a gift. Yeah, you could probably be a parking lot attendant. You could be a usher. You could be a greeter. You could be something. And use this gift not for self-advancement or draw attention, but for the benefit of other people. Notice it says each. means that all Christians have something to offer. They have talents or abilities given to them by the Holy Spirit to do something. It's amazing that people can offer their neighbors to help them, and they come into church on Sunday morning and they never help. They never think of helping. Never think of it. They look and they're like, well, I can't play an instrument, I can't sing, or I can't teach, or I can't. what could I do? I don't know, vacuum the floor, do something. Then it says varied gifts, that each has a gift, use it as stewards of God's varied grace. There are many facets and many aspects of the same gift. It can be defined in many ways. Be good stewards, meaning a person will not hide the gift, but employ it for the benefit of others. He's talking about within the church. Then in verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God that God supplies, in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be on glory and honor, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Whoever speaks as one who speaks as the oracles of God. Oracles means divine utterance, anointed to speak, skilled in presentation, in preaching, in fluency in preaching. This is speaking with seriousness of purpose. 
to affect the life of the hearer and the life of the congregation. This is not casual conversation. This has to do with preaching and teaching and refers to pastoral gift. But then it says, whoever serves, this is a broad category which includes any type of help. Every day of the world, I pray for all ministry of helps in this church. I start at the parking lot. And I go to the greeters. And I go to the children's ministry. Then I go to the, to the cafeteria. Then I go to the ushers. Then I go to the ministry team. Then I go to Pastor Brent last. No, I go around. And I go around this way. I go around to the sound people. I go over to people that count the money. I come up here to the staff, uh, deal with the staff, and then up here to the thing. I, I make my rounds. Why? Because everybody needs the help of God. The parking lot attendant is the first, the first line of offense. The smile he gives out there. The first time they, if a stranger comes in and the parking lot attendant is smiling while he's saying, go over here, don't go over there, but come over here. He's creating an atmosphere and doesn't even know it. So he says, as the strength of God supplies, this would then be the source of service. Whatever you're, however you're serving, ask God for, your, for strength. Not just out of human energy. This kind of service done in human energy alone or for one's own status can become weary activity. This is why... Paul said to the Galatian church in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we'll reap if we faint not. But we will, and we don't give up, but we'll give up and faint if everything that we do for God in the church is done in our own strength and for our own glory. See, the ultimate purpose of all of this is notice at the end of that verse, and in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, that God will be glorified. This is the deal. This is why we do what we do. So Jesus will be glorified. Next section. Do not be surprised at your trials. So now he's, he, he gives us encouragement about the church. And now he gets back for this issue. I want you to keep in mind tonight that Peter is addressing Christians in 10 or more major churches scattered throughout the four provinces in Asia Minor. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia. You can get that in the first verse. From the very first spread of the gospel, there had been hostility and even violent opposition. Now I'm going to give you some scriptures in Acts that you can read about this violent opposition. Acts 4, 1 through 3. Now you don't have to put the word Acts down every time. Come on. The next time I say something, it just puts 757 or whatever, okay? I'm going to read in a minute Acts 5, 17 to 18, 40 to 41. The next scripture is 7, 57 to 60. 8, 1 through 3. 
13, 50 to 52. 14, 4 through 6, and verse 19. 17, 5 through 9, and 13. 18, 12 through 17. 20, verse 3. 21, 27 to 36. Hostility throughout the church. Let me read Acts 5, 17 to 18, 44. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer honor or dishonor for the name. So here now we're still discussing the theme, living as a Christian in a hostile world that really was started way back in chapter 2. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering persecution is not to be thought of as unusual, but a normal part of Christian living. There has to be light shining. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. <laughs> then verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice that you also may rejoice and be glad when glory is revealed. Instead of being thrown for a loop or instead of being thrown off balance by trials, we are to rejoice. The joy of the Lord is our strength, Matthew 8, or Nehemiah 8.10 says. Be strong in the Lord. Living for Christ now in the midst of hostility makes his return more glorious. We're looking forward to him coming. Verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you're insulted, if you're defamed, if you're reproached, if you're reviled, if you're abused, if you're, a sl if you're slandered for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of the glory of God will rest upon you. That means his presence will rest upon you. I, I want to tell you a personal experience, but before I do, I want you to turn in your tablets or your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel chapter 3. In the area where Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. I'll wait till you get it. Ezekiel chapter 3. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Ezekiel 3, 
8 and 9. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery harder than flint have I made your forehead. Fear them not, nor be dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house. The Bible says there that the Holy Spirit, or the, or, or the Spirit of glory, if, you're, if, you're, if you have trials and tests, the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you, his presence, and it makes you, it toughens you in the spirit realm. Makes your forehead like flint. Many years ago, in 1982, the Lord visited me about changes that I had to make. I was in the United Church at the time, and I got up to preach one morning, On the inside of me, the Lord said, you have nothing to say to these people. That was a bitter blow because I'd always prided myself in studying and preparing, doing research to quote Shakespeare and Milton and history and political science, everything. He who steals from me who steals my name robs me of that rich and riches him and makes me poor indeed Shakespeare so I was studying got up Lord said you have nothing to say to them somewhere along the same time not on the same day but same time my wife was in the choir and she looked at a a beautiful stained glass window and it was with the disciples there with Jesus and it says, and they know, oh, the guy's on the road to Damascus. And it says, and they knew him. And my wife said inside of her, I don't know you like I should. The Lord visited us and we made some changes, suffered persecution. When after, after three years of preaching evangelically, the Lord gave me five messages in the fall of 1985 and I I was trying to remember the names of the messages one was the Laodicean church the other was the bread of life the other was you must be born again I've forgotten now what the other two were but I was to announce that my last service in this series of five I'd be preaching on you must be born again and I was to announce that in every Sunday along the way So that Sunday, when I got up to preach, the church was packed. Balcony, everywhere, packed. So I preached, you must be born again, and I had an altar call. Now, I used to have an altar call every Sunday at that church, but I never asked people to come forward. I just asked them, after the service is over, if you want to come into the chapel, because it was a nice chapel, you could come in and I'll come in after I finish shaking hands with the people. I'll come in and I'll share with you if you need Jesus, whatever. But this time I decided, felt impressed, to have people come forward. So I had them come forward. People came from everywhere. Came from the balcony, came from the main floor, came from the choir. 
people tried to stop people from coming out. A guy came up. Now think of this. Think of this. In this beautiful church, he came up to the front, who was one of the chairmen of the trustees, and he got into the microphone and he started talking. And the microphone went dead. That's true. What he was trying to say is, you come Reverend Coulter's way, or you go our way. It's either out the back or come to the front. So all these people came to the front, met them in the chapel. That's the last time I ever preached. Presbyterian came in, said, you can't preach here anymore, blah, blah, blah. They offered me $70,000 to leave. If I would leave quietly, I'd say no. I said no. The Lord told me to play it out through the courts of the church to, as a witness. In one of the meetings, a man came up to me and says, are you a prophet? Just like that teeth hanging out. I remember the scripture and they ran at them with their teeth. And so I said, no, I'm not a prophet. They said, well, nobody can act like you unless you got counsel from somewhere. I said, I do. I have an advocate. They didn't know that I meant the Holy Spirit. I had people from head office, which was at 85 St. Clair in those days, I had people from the head office come to me and ask me if I would, if they'd allow them to be my court lawyer because they wanted to go through all the courts of the church because they said too many of our ministers are being, are being fired because they're preaching the gospel. The Lord said, don't do that. Don't have anybody, don't have anybody fight for you. Just be cool. I'll show you what to do. Guy came into our house offered me $70,000. Now, in those days, $70,000 to me was like a million dollars. $70,000 cash if I would leave. I said, no, I'm not leaving. Finally, at this meeting that they had of the major conference, <clears throat> they said they were going to kick us out of the manse, kick us out of the church. The children were teenagers. They were in high school. And... I, I, I didn't know. I just said, Lord, whatever you want, you, uh, you're going to look after us. So they said the most horrible things about us. They wrote letters you couldn't believe. I couldn't even recognize myself. And so at, at this time, this presence of God came on me and my family and has never left. Has never left. My forehead is like flint. When, when, when persecution comes, it bounces off me. And it, and it came on my children. They walked around port credit as if nothing ever happened. They got the highest sparks they ever did in high school. Sharing, grade 13 was in then. She got the highest sparks she ever did in grade 13. It came on my children came on my wife. It says, the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. When, when, when trouble comes in the church, I just know what to do. His presence has never left, and he has blessed us beyond our wildest imaginations. And persecution hasn't stopped. It's an amazing thing. God took me through that to take me through some other things that just happened just recently. My forehead's like flint. 
and God keeps blessing. <laughs> I'm just telling you this story to tell you that if you do it right, if you act right, God will bless you. Abundantly above all you can even ask or think. This congregation is now up to 500. Uh, on Sunday, it was almost 600. God has restored and replenished. My head is like flint. And I'm giving glory to him. And I just want you to know that I am that God is no respecter of persons and I'm not any more special than you are. But if you'll stand firm in the midst of persecution, some wives are being persecuted because their husbands are mad at them because they serve Jesus. And I tell them if they just hang steady, if they just hang steady, if they love God, don't allow abuse but if he's willing to live with you, even though he's angry that you're serving God, God will restore you and bless you. The spirit of glory, it says in the New Testament, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory of and of God rests upon you. That means the presence of God rests upon you. First Peter 4:15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Most Christians are not going to suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, but they may suffer as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Such a blessing that God wants to give is not bestowed on every kind of suffering. This is what Peter is saying here. Not a murderer, not a thief, not an evildoer, a meddler. What's a meddler? A mischief maker, one who meddles in the affairs of others with wrong motives. If you suffer as a Christian, it says in verse 16, as a Christian, I do not be ashamed. As a follower of Christ, let him praise God that he can actually bear the name of Christian, bear the name of Jesus. They told him in the New Testament there, you'll read some of the scriptures that I gave you. They told him, don't speak in the name of Jesus. They said, we've got to obey God more than obey you. And what happened to those apostles? The spirit of the glory and the presence of God came upon them. And they're the ones that started the church. Let him not be dishonored. Let him not be ashamed. Let him not feel but honored in God's sight. The next section, for God's judgment is beginning from God's own house. This is important to understand. Judgment begins at the house of God, we've heard. Verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? As Christians, let me have an insert here. As Christians, we wonder sometimes, how do these people, 
Why is God's people suffering and people who are evildoers go unpunished? Ever thought of that? I mean, they just, they just seem to prosper and nothing ever happens to them. They prosper financially. They prosper every way they can imagine and yet some Christians are just going through it. I used to ask that question philosophically, but here's the answer in Psalm 73. I'm going to read it to you. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw their prosperity, the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. These increase in riches. But when I thought, how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in a slippery place. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away into utter terror. When they leave this world, they go into a bad place. Judgment is coming. For the church, the judgment is not condemnation. When God talks about judgment for the church, it's one of approval. So Christians are being purified and strengthened. It says that judgment begins at the household of God. It's not a judgment of wrath. It's a judgment of approval. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Somebody says, well, who's going to go in the rapture, pastor? Every Christian, even the weak ones. For they're in Christ. On the other hand, when judgment comes to the unbeliever, it moves to wrath. Let me go to verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This verse is the same sort of theme as verse 17. God's holy judgment for us turns to favor. For the world or the unbeliever, it turns to wrath. Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. Let's look at 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That is, God's judgment for the Christian turns to favor. Now, he's all, he's, he did a propitiation for the whole world. So even their sins are not being judged. But if they don't accept Christ as Savior and Lord, they're, they're not accepting the one thing that gives them salvation. So then they, after death, are going to suffer the wrath of God. But right now, the unbeliever is not suffering the wrath of God because God was a propitiation. Uh, what's another one? First, First Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life, which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Notice it says scarcely saved. That doesn't mean saved with the skin of your teeth. doesn't mean barely saved. It means saved with difficulty. You folks know difficulty. You're saved 
but it's saved with difficulty. You have, you have, you'll have persecution. You'll have trials and tests. You have to fight the good fight of faith. It's difficult to live by faith. If you don't have a lot of word on the inside of you, you're going to fall by the wayside. You're going to be up one day and down the next. Up and down, up and down, up and down. That's what some Christians are like. One day on the mountain, the next day in the valley. The mountain, the valley, the mountain, the valley. Up and down and up and down. Why? There's no word in them. You're saved with difficulty. You have to fight the good fight of faith. Saved with difficulty also means, in my mind, to humble yourself and accept Christ for salvation with no boast in yourself. No boast. For by grace are you saved by faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. Lest any man should boast. I'm getting to the end, and you're very happy. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In the presence of suffering, what should Christians do? They should continue to entrust their souls to a faithful creator. In trials and tests, don't blame God and don't stay blaming yourself. But entrust yourself to God. Cast your care onto the Lord. Ask the Lord to get you out of this mess. And trust him. And trust your souls to a faithful creator. In all of suffering, in all of trials, in all of tests, we're not alone, but we can depend on a loving creator who knows we will suffer persecution and we will suffer in this life because there's a broken world, which is tantamount to being in the will of God. Can you not see that? Suffering in this life means it's the will of God that you are living for God. The devil doesn't like it. Someone said to me one time, since I've become a Christian, all hell's broke loose. Because the devil doesn't like it. But you have to learn how to resist the devil. Get into the word of God. For his will for us is to walk by faith and overcome. So just keep doing good. Just keep walking by faith. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. He keeps saying that in Romans and Galatians. The just shall live by faith. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to live for him. He wants us to live for him so that we can know that through it all, we can come out on the other side blessed and looked after. You can experience the promises of God while suffering persecution. You can, you can experience prosperity while suffering slander. You can experience healing while suffering trials and tests. All God says to you is just keep on. Romans 8, 18. I want to leave you with this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed in us. The presence of God now and in the future. The glory of God rests upon us. Well, that's as far as we're going to get in First Peter. 
I was going to do something tonight if I got finished in time, which I didn't. But you should read over and over. By the t you should read chapter 5. It's not very long. But I think it makes more sense when you have this other stuff. I want you to have a good time in First Peter. When, it, when Pastor Brent puts it on the website, I'm going to do chapter 5 by myself in the office with a microphone, and Pastor Brent will put it on. Maybe I can get my wife to be in the office and watch me and while I preach. I'll preach to her. But it's been fun. Uh, I've enjoyed it myself. I'm sorry to keep you, but I wanted to get at least through verse 4. Thanks for listening. If you need prayer or would like to share how this message has impacted you, please email info at thecitychurch.ca.